The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter five. The title of my message for you this evening is The Message in the Miracle. So if you were here last week, we took a look at this story where Jesus goes and heals a man who had been crippled for 38 years. It's an incredible miracle. And today we're gonna see how that miracle was was more than, than just a cool party trick. It was more than just about making a man whole, the miracle was a pretext or a platform, if you will, for a message that Jesus wanted to give. And that's always the way it works. Jesus' miracles were never an end in and of themselves. They always served a greater purpose. In fact, if you fast forward to the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, specifically in verses 30 and 31, John tells us why Jesus did his miracles. And he says, you know, there were Tons more things, miracles, that Jesus performed, but these have been carefully selected. These have been written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus did his miracles, according to John, so that it might birth belief inside the hearts of those who either witnessed them or experienced them. It was so that the the seed of faith might be planted in the heart of those people and they might put their faith in Jesus and in believing in him, they might have life in his name. But not everyone responded in that way, of course. And so we have the response of the religious leaders who saw the miracle but missed the point. They missed the message. Why? Because they were focused on the wrong thing. See, Jesus didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit inside of their box, and so they rejected him. Their devotion was really to their own rules, and their rules blinded them from recognizing the Messiah, even when he was standing right in front of them. So instead of rejoicing over the fact that here's a man who had been crippled for 38 years, and Jesus had just raised him up, and he's standing healed and whole before them, instead of rejoicing in that, or instead of investigating this man named Jesus who had very clearly just cured this man and performed an incredible miracle, they chose instead, listen, to focus on the fact that the guy that got healed was carrying his mat on the Sabbath, which according to them violated their rules about the Sabbath. And here's the point. If we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us. We can end up focusing on the wrong thing. We're liable of missing out on the miracle and focusing on the mat. Let me explain. This happens when we become more committed to our traditions or our rituals or our preferences than we are to Jesus. It happens when our opinions get large and Jesus gets small. It happens when we place greater value and emphasis on our own proclivities than we do on Jesus. And it's a slippery slope, 
right? They missed God even when he was standing right in front of them. How do you end up becoming a Pharisee? It happens slowly over time. It happens to good people, and it happens when our focus is on the wrong thing. And so we've got to be careful that we always prioritize and make sure that we emphasize Jesus over and above everything. Can somebody just say amen to that, please? Amen. So that's what tonight is all about. It says in verse 16, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, hey, my my father's always working to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the the first point in our outline this evening is Jesus and the Father are one. See, Jesus very clearly could have healed the guy the day prior or a day later, but he chose instead to heal him on the Sabbath. Why? Because he wanted to force a confrontation between himself and the religious establishment of the day. He knew that they would pick a fight with them, and so they began to persecute him because he had healed the guy on the wrong day. Can we just stop and acknowledge how crazy that is? That they wanted to tell Jesus to have this guy come back and get healed during normal business hours. You know, God's off the clock today. By the way, God is never off the clock. And Jesus points this out. He says, my father's always working, even to this day, and that's why I am too. Can you imagine what would happen if God decided to take a day off, or just a second off? (laughs) Planets would go careening out of their orbits, and and the, the universe itself would become untethered and unhinged and unglued. Paul talked about this very thing in his letter to the Colossians, the book that we studied prior to the Gospel of John. And this is Colossians 1:17. I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that. And that is such an important thing for us to grasp and lay hold of and internalize and and, and, and really apply. It's true on a grand scale. It's true on a macro scale. In him, all things hold together. The Bible talks about in Isaiah how he placed each of the stars in the sky and how he calls them all by name and how he holds the universe in the palm of his hands. You remember that song from when we were kids? He's got the whole world in his hands. It's really true. He does, but not just the world. The entire universe, he's holding it together. But it's not just true on a macro scale, it's also true on a microscopic scale. Scientists talk about how there's this thing that they refer to as atomic glue that literally is the thing that binds together the nucleus of an atom, which should just explode and repel off of itself. But there's this stuff they call atomic glue, and it holds the atom, the, the, the molecule that is the building block for the entire universe, and it's what holds things together. Well, it's not atomic glue, it's Jesus. He's the one who literally is holding all things together on a grand macro scale, on a microscopic scale, and let's just personalize this. It's true on a personal level as well. Jesus is the one that holds you together. 
And he's always on the job. I mean, and I am reminded of this fact. Every time I get my eyes off of Jesus and I think, God, I've got this on my own, all of a sudden things start spinning out of control and things just fall apart. And then I remember, oh yeah, he's the one who holds me together. And as long as my heart is fixed on him, the world can be spinning out of control all around me, but I can have perfect peace in my heart because he's holding me together. Amen? Amen. And so the Father is always working. He's holding everything together. And Jesus just said he was doing what his Father was doing. Now, when he said this, the Jews immediately picked up on the fact that he was claiming God as his Father and thus making himself equal with God. And this really ramped up their persecution. Because in the span of a couple of verses, now they're talking about wanting to kill him. And so the seed of hatred had blossomed into, into this, this flower of hostility that now they want to literally kill Jesus because in their eyes, he's making a blasphemous claim. And by the way, there are those who say, well, you know, Jesus was a good man. He was a good moral teacher. But he wasn't God. And he didn't even claim to be God. And people who say that are, are just, you know, they've lost it a little bit. Well. No, no, no. Jesus unequivocally and repeatedly and explicitly claimed equality with God. And his enemies understood that. That's what we glean from this text. He didn't just say, I'm a good man or I'm a godly man. He didn't just say, I'm a moral man or I'm an example. No, he said, I am God. And because of the life that he lived and because of who he was, we have to take his claim seriously and we have to weigh his words. Either he was telling the truth or he wasn't. Now, in verses 19 through 23, Jesus gives them the following answer. He could see that his words were ruffling their feathers, so he continues to press the issue and expand on the, the closeness of his relationship with the Father. He says, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you'll be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. All right, go back to the beginning there where Jesus says, I do nothing of myself. That's, that's how close the connection between Jesus and his father is. He not even one time acted independently of the Father. Remember that scene in the Gospels where Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and the, the source of those temptations was rooted in Satan's efforts to get Jesus to act independently of the Father. And Jesus wouldn't touch it. He wouldn't go there. He wouldn't do it. He only did those things that pleased the Father. Oh, wouldn't that be a beautiful goal or ambition for all of us? to just only do the things that we see our Father in heaven doing. I, I long for that to be true of me, even as it was true of Jesus. And, and what that means for us is, when we look at Jesus, what we are given is a perfect picture of the heart of the Father. And Jesus, the infinite God, becomes finite. The transcendent God 
becomes imminent, and the invisible God becomes visible. So for anyone in here who has ever wondered, what is God like? Let me just encourage you to spend time with Jesus. He holds all the keys and all the answers to all your questions about what God is like. Now, sometimes people see a discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament. You hear those people say things like, well, I, I like Jesus, and I like what I see about him in the New Testament, but you know, that God in the Old Testament he seems pretty cranky, and he's kind of got a temper, and, and I don't know about him. No, 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 no discrepancy exists. They are one and the same, and Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. Whenever he opened his mouth, he revealed the heart of the Father. Whenever he healed someone, he showed us what God is like. So there's that story in, in John chapter 14. And Jesus is seated around the table with his disciples. And in exasperation, Philip, he just voices the thing that was on so many of the other disciples' minds, but they were just too afraid to say it, when he said, oh, Jesus, would, would you just show us the Father? Just show us the Father. Just reveal the Father. You're always talking about the Father. And here was Jesus' response to Philip. And I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. This is John 14, verse 9. He said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see the very Father. And his works are the works of the Father. And in, in verse 21, he basically says, this miracle that you guys just witnessed, it's, it's nothing. We're just, this is small potatoes. We're just getting started. Stick around. You're going to see greater things than this, verse 21. You're going to see the dead raised to life. By the way, this was another bold claim on the part of Jesus. You see, the Jewish rabbis taught that God held three important keys. The key to open the heavens so that it rained and to shut up the heavens. They also said that God the Father held the key to open the womb of a woman so that she could bear and have kids. And they said that God held the keys to the grave and only he could rise, raise the dead. They rightly understood that only God could bring back life from the grave. And so, in claiming that he was able to raise the dead, Jesus is very boldly asserting, yeah, I'm God. And by the way, he hadn't raised anyone from the dead yet at this point. And so they're like, oh, who do you think you are? But of course, we know how the story plays out. And Jesus did go on to raise several people from the dead, including a guy by the name of Lazarus, who by the time Jesus showed up to, to where he was buried, he had been dead for four days. And each one of those miracles served as another powerful validation of Jesus' claim to be God. But of course, the greatest proof, if you will, of his power over the grave occurred in his own heart and in his own life when he went to the cross and paid for the sins of the world and then three days later triumphed over the grave. Amen, praise the Lord. I just got to say amen to my own preaching sometimes. <laughs> In Acts chapter 2, Peter was, was talking about that day and the power of it. And this is what Peter said about that day. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it wasn't possible for death to keep its hold on him. Death 
couldn't stop him. The grave couldn't hold him because he is the author of life. He is the prince of life. He is the death defeater and the grave conqueror. That's who Jesus is. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he's exalted above every name that's named. And he lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for his kids. And he sits in a place of authority, and he sits in a place of judgment, and the Bible tells us that one day he's going to come back, and he's going to judge the whole earth, which is what we see in verses 22 and 23. Jesus is the judge. He says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father, and whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So here we see Jesus saying, not only do I have oneness with the Father, not only do I have the ability to raise the dead, but I am the judge of the whole earth. Now, they're really getting uncomfortable, and maybe you are too. I mean, the thought of a coming judgment makes a lot of us feel uncomfortable. To some of us, it feels old, antiquated, outdated, like, really, are you still believing in all of that fire and brimstone stuff? For others, it feels incongruous with this message that we constantly hear about a God who is loving and merciful and gracious and kind. And I just want to say that God is all of those things that you've come to know and believe about him. He's incredibly merciful. He's long-suffering. He is abounding in grace and mercy. But he is also perfectly just and holy and righteous. And because of that, He's incapable of turning a blind eye to our sin or just merely sweeping it under the rug. He must judge, and he must judge righteously, as uncomfortable as it may be. The fact is, there is a day coming where every person in here will stand before the living God. The Bible speaks to this point in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. Let's go ahead and read this verse out loud. It is appointed unto men once to die and then to face the judgment. Wow, sobering thought. You know, death is a subject we would rather put on the shelf, not think about. I mean, it's a beautiful evening. Things were going so well in here. My dad used to like to say, you know, the statistics on death are rather impressive. One out of every one people dies. (laughs) Knowing that should cause us then to reflect on where we are going and where we're going to spend eternity because at the end of the day, there are only two paths. Jesus talked about two foundations, the house that's built on the rock and the house that's built on the sand. He talked about a broad road and a narrow road. He talked about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He talked about heaven and hell. There are two paths, and we need to each wrestle in our hearts. Which path are we on? There's a tombstone in England, and on it are inscribed these words. Pause now, stranger, when you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be, so prepare for death and follow me. (laughs) One Englishman happened to be walking by, and he was heard responding in the following manner. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. (laughs) So true. 
We need to surround ourselves with people that are on the right path, and we need to ourselves make sure that we're on the narrow path that leads to eternal life, because there is a day when we will stand before God. Now, Jesus expands on this teaching about this coming judgment in verse 24, where he says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. All right, what's going on here is Jesus talks now more at length about this coming judgment and how to avoid it. I find verse 24 a key verse in this passage where Jesus tells us this. He says, those who hear my words and believe in me will not be judged, but have crossed over from death to life. Very simply, here's what Jesus was saying. When he, what he meant was, if you're a believer in him, if you hear his words, if you hear the beautiful simplicity of the gospel message, that God loves sinful humanity and inspired him to leave heaven and to come to this earth and to live the perfect life we could never live, to die the death on the cross that we deserve because of our sins, and then to rise triumphant over the grave so that whoever puts their faith in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you profess your faith in Jesus and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. And you have nothing to fear with this coming judgment. Phew, that's good news. Because it was starting to get a little heavy in here. I mean, I think there are so many people that walk around with this looming sense of impending doom and dread. Why? Because we know in our heart of hearts that we haven't done enough. And if we're going to be weighed on those cosmic scales, we're going to be found wanting. And so we have kind of this, this image in our mind of what happens when a person dies. And I think it's in part been formed by what we see on TV. And, and so you have kind of a long line and the escalator leading up to heaven or whatever it may be. And you have these people kind of shuffling their way towards the front of the line where their Peter or an angel or God sits. And, and he determines your eternal fate. And the books are opened, you know. Did I do enough? And in our heart of hearts, we know, I don't think I did. You know, in my, in my worst nightmares, I imagine that there's a big TV screen there. And you know this angel is broadcasting for everyone to see all the horrible things that I've done. And it's, it's a long movie. <laughs> but thank God for verse 24, because here we learn that that's not at all what's going to happen for those of us who've put our faith in Jesus. Why? Because we've passed from death to life. His history has become your history. Your sins were put on his back. So now when the father looks at you, all he sees is the son. And what this does is it lifts the burden and it lifts the fear of death so we're no more shackled by it. Another verse, and I know I've got a lot of cross-references in tonight's sermon, 
But this is a great one. This is Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. I'll just read it to you, and you can follow along since it's longer. It says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Ooh, praise the Lord. He broke the power of the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And he came to what? Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. God wants to set someone in here free tonight. You know, it was this incredible experience. Earlier this week, I was walking through the lobby of our church, and there was a woman standing there. She had just kind of found her way here and used to attend years ago and, and is just, you know, at a point in her life where she was searching. And so she just came here because she wanted to find a pastor. And it just so happened that I ran into her, and I was the first one to meet her there. And so I began to talk with her right in the lobby, and she was sharing with me her story, and she had so much guilt and so much regret over things in her past and things that she had done. And, and she looked at me, and she said, is there, is there hope for someone like me to be saved? And I was so blessed to get to share with her the good news of the gospel that whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. You've passed from death to life. The guilt is gone. The shame is gone. He wants to take your heart and remove those guilt rocks, you know, the rocks of guilt. And he wants to replace it with peace. And we prayed right there in the, the lobby, and she received the Lord. And we followed up with her this week, and she's coming on Thursday to get baptized. How exciting is that? Man, I love that. So Jesus says, this is what it's all about. I've come that they might have life. I want you to be set free, for who the Son sets free is free indeed. So Jesus is telling us who he is. This is the message in the miracle. There's a message in the miracle. And the message is that Jesus is a good God, and he's worth putting your faith in. So he says, I have the power to raise the dead. I'm the judge of the whole earth. But anybody can say whatever they want about themselves. Just because you claim something doesn't make it true. That's why in verse, beginning in verse 31, Jesus calls several witnesses to validate his claims about himself. He says in verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. So here we have three key witnesses. And this idea of a witness is an important theme in John's gospel. He mentions it 47 times. Remember, he's building a case for the divinity of Jesus. So he develops this theme throughout his gospel. And, and it goes and roots itself in the court of Jewish law, where every event had to be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That was the precedent. And keeping in line with that, Jesus says, well, here's three more witnesses that would validate my claims. And the first one he calls to the sand is John the Baptist. Now, all the people held John to be a prophet. 
Even the religious leaders sent a delegation out to John to see what he claimed for himself, and they heard from his lips, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. The one coming after me is preferred before me. And then he sees Jesus, and he's like, that's the guy. That's the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. So John was a witness of Jesus. The second witness that he called on were his own miracles. And even, let's admit, that even Jesus' harshest critics and biggest enemies couldn't deny his miraculous power. He did things that nobody else could do. He opened blind eyes and deaf ears, and he healed incurable diseases. And all of these things were like calling cards that the, the prophets had spoken of in the past, foretelling that the people that when the Messiah comes, these are the things he'll do, and this is how you'll know that it's God in you and among you, and, and there were over 300 prophecies, and so every time Jesus performed a miracle, it was like another link in the chain that connected his testimony to the God in heaven above him. They set him apart and identified him as God's chosen one. So that's the second witness. The third witness he mentions is the Father, who on two separate occasions declared verbally and publicly, this is my Son, whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. So we have three witnesses, all declaring the same thing to be true. But they were missing it. And so we close with this in the second half of verse 37. It goes on to say, you've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, him you will accept. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you gonna believe what I say? Jesus says, here's all these proofs. Here's the man standing before you. Here's these three witnesses and yet, you're studying the scriptures and you think you're going to find life in them, but you won't come to me. I'm the point. Listen, here's the final point in our outline this evening. Jesus is the point. He pointed out how they studied the scriptures diligently. Now, he was putting it mildly when he said that. These religious men were so devoted to the word of God that they had dedicated their entire lives to studying it. Most of them had memorized the entire Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, along with all the writings and the prophets. Listen to this quote. This will give you a sense of their dedication to studying and learning the word of God. It says, at age five, young boys went to the local synagogue school to learn Hebrew and memorize the Torah. 
By the time of his bar mitzvah at age 13, a typical Jewish young man was very conversant with God's word, having memorized the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, which comprised all of the Hebrew scriptures of that day. These guys knew all the answers. They had God all figured out. They knew the word of God backwards and forwards. But as it turns out, they didn't yet know the God of the word. They counted the very letters on the page, but they missed the one those letters were pointing to. They stuffed their heads full of knowledge, but their hearts were dry and vacant and dull and dead. Remember that scene at the end of Luke's gospel after Jesus had risen from the dead and there was so much confusion. The women had come back to the disciples and told them the tomb was empty and there were these two disciples that just, it was more than they could take and so they took off down the road of Emmaus. In Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter tells us how Jesus joined the two of them as they walked incognito. They couldn't recognize that it was Jesus and he began to talk to them about what had happened in Jerusalem. They began to tell them about Jesus and then Jesus says, says this, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He preached himself through the the passages there in Genesis, perhaps taking them to Genesis 22, that famous story where Abraham almost sacrifices his son Isaac. It's a powerful picture of the cross. Jesus was crucified on the very same mountain. He took them to passages in Exodus that talked about Moses and the rock and Jesus telling them, I'm the rock that was struck and out of me pours the living waters. I'm the one that led you through the Red Sea and brought you into the promised land. I am the one that caused the walls to fall. And in all of these ways, Jesus showed how every passage was about him. Every story was about him, every word. And and then eventually they had to part ways and Jesus blessed the bread and he broke it and their eyes were open and they said to one another, oh, didn't our hearts burn within us as he shared the scriptures with us? You see, some of you, you read your Bible and and for you it's it's dull, it's lifeless. And the reason for that is because for you it's, it's not a living book. It's a history book. Listen, this is more than history. And the thing that takes the word of God and transforms it from something that is just historically accurate into something that is transformative and brings you to a power encounter with a living God that shapes your very day and gives meaning to your steps and to your your life and everything that happens is when you get to know the author. Amen. Amen. So I love to read, and I'm in a book club with some friends here at the church, and, and we read different books. And, and so um, on one occasion, uh, one of the, the gals that's in the club, she was sitting at our front desk, and she was manning the front desk, and she was reading the book that we were going to be discussing at our next meeting. And someone walked up, and they said, oh, what are you, what are you reading? And she told her the name of the book. And the lady said, oh, I, I know the author of that book. And, and the guy that that book's written about comes to this church sometimes. She goes, in fact, I bet if you called him, I could give you his number. I bet you they'd come, the author and the guy. She's like, are you kidding me? Give me a number. So we called him up. She called him up. And they both came to our next book club meeting. And don't you know, that was the best book club meeting of all time. 
Because instead of just sitting around and talking to each other about, I don't know, what did you think this part of the book was, uh, uh, was all about? And, and what do you think was going through his head when, when he went through this? Or what do you think the author meant when she said that? Instead of kind of dialoguing between ourselves about those things, we were able to say, what'd you think? <laughs> and we just brought the question right to the author. Well, let me tell you something. We not only have the book, but we know the author. And he's here and he's with us. And my fear for us is that we would get so caught up in our own traditions and our own rituals and our own programs and our own proclivities and, and, and we would get so caught up in things that are secondary issues that we would be like these religious leaders who are focused on the mat and we miss out on the miracle. God wants us to be people who are centered in Jesus, who love Jesus, who lift up the name of Jesus. We gather around Jesus. We cast our crowns down at the feet of Jesus. We lift Jesus high. He is the centerpiece of this study and every gathering here at this church. And so as long as we stay focused on that, I think we're going to be okay. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are here. You breathe fresh life into your word each and every time we gather around it. You said the words that I speak to you, they're spirit and they're life. And some of you, today is that day where you move from religion to relationship. Religion is cold, dead, lifeless. Religion never changed a single heart. Religion can't help you look more like Jesus. All it can do is make you hypercritical and judgmental of others or make you feel worthless and horrible about yourself. But when you walk in relationship with Jesus, when you get to know the author, when you allow the spirit of God to fill your heart and your mind and your life and your soul, your, your whole world up and opens up. Every day becomes a brand new adventure. It becomes a treasure hunt where you're excited and looking for opportunities like for God's fingerprints to show up because they're all over your story and you just need to see the message in the miracle. Your life is filled with miracles, but some of you are missing out on the message because you're taking the miracle for granted. You're not seeing Jesus in it. So I, Lord, would you give us eyes to see you in every conversation we have? Would you give us eyes that are fixed on you in every trial that we pass through? Would you give us eyes to see you on every page of our story as it's being written? And we pray and ask all of these things together in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.